All right, woo! That was amazing. I just, I'm so thankful for the worshipers who just led us into the presence of Jesus. Man, I was like, we could just stay there. <laughs> we could just stay there, but it's my prayer that tonight we will continue in worshiping the Lord as we open his word together. If we haven't met before, my name is Taylor Roshkalb. Um, if you've heard Andy up here teaching, we are married, so I, uh, I belong with him. And um, anyway, so I'm really excited to open the scriptures with you tonight. The story we're gonna read is a familiar one, and sometimes I'm aware that familiarity with a story or Bible, Bible story in particular can kind of sometimes blunt our heart to it a little bit. And so my prayer is that tonight that um, Jesus would just dazzle us. Um, and this story is a gem. And so I pray that as we sort of turn it together and look deeply into it, that the light of truth would just shine into each of our hearts and we would be dazzled. So if you wanna go ahead and open your Bible um, to know where we're going or open your app, we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 36 tonight. But before we get there, thinking about familiar stories, um, I, I wanted to know if maybe you guys have the same thing that Andy and I have, which is a blankie show. And what I mean by a blankie show is a TV show that we watch over and over and over to comfort ourselves after a long day. One that we've watched so many times, it's worn thin like a blankie, <laughs> and, and that we could practically quote it all day long. And there's nothing original about our blankie show. It is The Office. Um, it's one of those shows that you talk to people and they're either like, yes, and they start quoting it to you, or they're like, I don't get it. That's not for me. And I understand why, because The Office and shows like it are kind of like cringe comedy, right? They're so awkward that they make you cringe. Um, and there's no more awkward episode than in this awkward show than the dinner party of The Office. Now I got some laughs, because if you know, you know, it is the best episode, but it is the worst. It is like the worst best. And it just is layer upon layer of awkwardness and cringiness, and just when you think you can't feel any more uncomfortable, the doorbell rings, right? <laughs> and more awkward comes in the door. And so tonight, I'm inviting you to another dinner party one on the pages of scripture. So pull up your chair or maybe drag over your reclining couch since we're gonna be in the Middle East, right? Because this table was set 2,000 years ago. And let me tell you, it gets awkward. It gets weird. There's some subtext that we're gonna talk about tonight and some not so subtle insults that go on, truths that are revealed and even a surprise and not so welcome guest that as we'll see, Jesus is not opposed to awkward because the truth can be uncomfortable. It can make us cringe. But Jesus did not come to make us comfortable. He came to make us free. And so in this, this story, it, it is, I just love it. I know it probably every time I teach, I say, this is my favorite one, but I really do feel like that about this one. Uh, Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that this story is as full of meaning, as full of gospel, as any story in the New Testament. It brings the gospel up in three-dimensional, vivid reality. 
And so, I hope you'll imagine it with me as though we were watching it together on a big screen in full color. And as much as I love The Office, this thing, this dinner party did not happen in Scranton. It didn't happen in any modern context. It happened at a house in Galilee, the home of a Pharisee, in fact. And so, before we dive into our story, I wanna give you a little context there. Now, it is a dinner party, there is a group of people present, but only three different people are really highlighted in our text. And so, for my note takers in the audience, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take each person and we're gonna look at them and we're just gonna kind of go through three different observations and we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna see what truths we can find by looking at each one of the people. So we have our host, we'll have an invited guest, and we'll have an uninvited guest. So orienting ourselves in the context. So if you're in Luke chapter seven, what's happening, right? It's always important to kind of orient ourselves in the context. And so Jesus has been traveling at this time. He's preaching in synagogues throughout Judea and Galilee. He's proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom among them. He's healing people, doing miracles, giving sight to the blind, setting people free from physical and spiritual oppression and sickness, and he's even raising the dead. So people are paying attention, right? All kinds of people, large crowds of everyday people, and also Pharisees and teachers of the law. In Luke 5, it tells us that the Pharisees and teachers of the law from every village in Galilee, in Judea, and even Jerusalem were coming to see Jesus. So just as a reminder, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard of the Pharisees, but sometimes, all of these different religious folks are kind of lumped into one. So I just wanted to remind us of who they were because most of our, at least my familiarity with Pharisees was, well, they're the hypocrites because Jesus confronts them all the time in their hypocrisy. But at the time, they did not have a bad rap. These men were well thought of in their time and they had a lot of influence and their aim was good. It was to resist the Greek and Roman influence that had come into the area by purifying Israel through intensified observance of the Mosaic law, of the law of Moses. It was already difficult to follow that law, but the Pharisees, they managed to make it more difficult because they created this whole system of rule keeping around the law based on their own tradition and their own interpretation of the law and they were interested in Jesus because he was doing and saying things that were setting off their spidey senses. Alarm bells were going off in their mind because he did not keep the law away the way a Pharisee would. He was healing on the Sabbath day. He was reaching far beyond what a, a, even a, a rabbi or even a prophet would do. He was forgiving sin. That was blasphemy to them. There were specific parameters and rituals in the law of Moses about how sin was to be forgiven. There was a process, for goodness sake, and he was skipping right over it and just forgiving people. And added to this, Jesus had a reputation for eating with sinners and tax collectors. It was the Pharisees, in fact, who named this whole series Friend of Sinners. That moniker was not a compliment, by the way, because to eat with someone or to be called their friend was more than just a social connection here. It was, it was tantamount, eating with sinners, being with sinners, in their mind was tantamount to being a sinner. To eat with gluttons and drunk meant, drunks meant you didn't care if people thought you were a glutton and a drunk as well. Hospitality was huge in this culture, as we'll see. To sit at someone's table was a gesture of goodwill, of acceptance, of approval. And so, 
In Luke 7, Simon the Pharisee does something really bold. He decides to take matters into his own hands. He invites this popular but controversial teacher into his home to dinner so he could take a closer look. So let's read our text together. We're gonna read the whole thing in one swoop. It's kind of long, but it is awesome, all right? So picking up in verse 36 of Luke 7. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, meaning Jesus. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him and, or who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave both debts. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the, digger, the bigger debt given. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this man? who forgives sins. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now that's a story. There's so many layers, there's so much going on in the obvious parts and under the surface and no one is who they seem to be at first glance. So let's go through each person in the story and make some observations. We're gonna begin with Simon the Pharisee, okay? Now, a modern reader might hear this story and think, that the woman is the one who makes it weird. But seen through Middle Eastern eyes at this time, Simon makes it awkward first. Simon may have invited Jesus into his home, but he is anything but welcoming. You might even say that Simon wanted to put Jesus in his place. He wanted to put him in his place. That's our first point. The lack of hospitality he shows, the lack of water, the lack of oil, the lack of a kiss is an obvious snub at this time. Guests would take their shoes off upon entering a home, right? And at minimum in this day, you could expect a bucket or a bowl of water to be available for you to wash your dusty, dry feet. Oil was another cleansing offering given to them. It was common to all households. Olive oil is what you use to cook. It's what you use to light your lamps. It's what you use to anoint yourself as you walked in or to offer to a guest. It was kind of like how they freshened up. Anointing with oil, would um, it was like washing your face. 
And a kiss was a standard greeting of friendship among peers at this time, of honor. It was like a hearty handshake or a warm hug to someone you respect or someone you love. And we, we have our own rituals of welcome, right? So imagine with me, if you went, if you came to my house, if I invited you to my house, and when you arrived, I did not greet you. I didn't say, oh, you can put, if it was cold outside, you can put your jacket here. If I didn't say, hey, would you like a glass of water? If I didn't say, please come in. If I didn't have a place ready for you, maybe all my laundry was all over the couch and you couldn't sit down. <laughs> or if we sat down to a meal and there was no place for you. I was on my phone the whole time and didn't even engage you in conversation. It's a similar thing, it's an obvious snub. Everyone would have noticed it. And the omission was a clear message. Any friend of sinners is no friend of Simon the Pharisee. Jesus would need to earn that. He would need to prove himself. And we see Simon's scrutiny at Jesus in the passage, verse 39. It says, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, saw the woman, he, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know if this man were a prophet. So we know Simon is wanting to examine Jesus, to scrutinize him, to figure out, is he really who he says he is? But of course, Simon does know, or Jesus does know. Jesus does know everything about the woman. He knows it all. To him, all hearts are open. And even more, he knows Simon. He hears even the thoughts of Simon's heart. He, he speaks to him as though the man had spoken out loud in response to his thoughts. But the second thing I notice about Simon is that he was blind. He was blinded by self-righteousness. He was so convinced that he had the right way of doing things that he became blind to the people around him, even to the Messiah who stood before him. And even more than that, I think he was blind to the mercy of God. The forgiveness that Jesus confirmed to the woman was offensive to him. Now, Jewish thought did not affirm that forgiveness was fully unconditional. There were conditions. Debts must be repaid with interest to injured parties, and then proper offerings must be made at the proper place, the temple, and the priest would have to offer that in a certain way. And so, Jesus was blind to what, what he was doing because of these sort of presuppositions, because of these um, traditions. And he was blind, of course, to the woman. He saw her only as a sinner, as a lawbreaker of his own judgment, right? That he missed the beautiful offering that she gave to Jesus. The, this blindness is precisely the reason why Jesus tells a story. You know, the parables, this is sort of like a mini parable. Jesus tells all of these stories because stories do something that just plain talk can't, right? They enable us to see something in a new way. They give us a new perspective, right? Um, you can tell the truth in a story in a way that's not quite as confrontational, or maybe it is, but not till the end with a little twist like what Jesus does here. You know, on the Bible Project website, I, I was reading an article about parables, and it said that for Jesus, parables were not meant to explain things to people's satisfaction. They're not like moral stories exactly. Um, that they're rather to call in question all of their previous explanations and understandings. That's why his stories will often have a typical setting or subject matter like money lenders and debtors and then an unexpected twist, right? And then another thing that I think we notice here about Simon the Pharisee is that he was offended by Jesus. 
He was offended by Jesus because, you know, the truth is that most of us, like Simon, have expectations of Jesus. We have expectations of God, and sometimes they don't meet those expectations, and it offends us. Scott McKnight, who is a New Testament scholar and author and a seminary professor, um, gives, there's a story about him that when he was teaching the New Testament um, to students, he would give them a quiz at the beginning or sort of a questionnaire at the beginning of the semester where he'd ask them questions about Jesus um, and sort of what was he like, those kinds of things. And then maybe around the time of midterms, he'd give them a very similar uh, questionnaire again with, with some you know tweaks here and there, change the vocabulary, whatever. But this time, the questionnaire was about them, about their likes, about their preferences, about the way they saw the world. And what he discovered after years of doing these quizzes and comparing the two is that most people assume Jesus is just like them, that he thinks like them, that he has the same values as them. And so when Jesus does not behave the way we would behave, it's offensive. And Jesus does not treat this sinful woman the way that Simon would treat her, the way his peers would treat her. They would expect that she would be sent away, that she would be rebuked, right? The Pharisees considered themselves the insiders, the inside track with God, and she was the outsider. She was the sinner. She was not good enough or pious enough or pure enough, and any prophet worth his salt would know that. Yet Galatians chapter five, verse four, speaks to the position of someone like Simon, someone like me often, <laughs> who tries to be made right before God by merely keeping an outward code of conduct, by trying to be really good and keep all the rules. This is what it says in Galatians 5, four. You who are trying to be justified or made right by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. We tend to think that the fallen one would be the sinful woman, but this shows us that Simon was the one who was on the outside of God's grace. So now let's turn to the sinful woman, the forgiven woman. Now where Simon wanted to put Jesus in his place, she put Jesus in his proper place. Simon denied Jesus the bare minimum of hospitality and this woman's welcome was lavish and personal, instead of a bucket of water, torrents of tears, instead of a kiss of greeting, kisses of worship, instead of common olive oil, costly perfume. Her behavior feels really awkward to us, and it would have been awkward to them too. But it's just the right kind of awkward. Now, we assume uh, in this story that, that she has encountered Jesus before. I'm sorry, my phone is dinging or my watch, so I'm gonna turn it. I do not disturb. Sorry about that. <laughs> Rookie move. So we assume this woman, sorry about that, I, got, I took us out of it. So we assume that this woman, that she had already encountered Jesus, right? Because Jesus doesn't say your sins are forgiven because you've put this perfume on my feet and because you've kissed me, right? He says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And so the assumption here is that she'd already heard God, Jesus teach on God's love for sinners. She'd already heard his inv invitation to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with all of these burdens and obligations of the law, and I will give you rest. Come and learn from me, right? And she took him at his word. She believed him, and she came. That's what faith is, it's just trusting that what Jesus says is actually true. Not just true for other people, 
but true for us. And so she sought Jesus out to show him her gratitude in a very bold way, because our next observation is that she was emboldened by her love, right? She was not blind to who Jesus was. She had maybe once been blind, but now she saw him. She saw not only him, but she saw herself. She saw her condition without him. She knew that she was a sinful woman. And so her reaction to his forgiveness was love, was a generous gift. This was a generous gift. It was likely her savings, something like this. It was maybe a dowry. It was maybe an inheritance from her parents. We don't know, but, but we do know that alabaster jars of perfume like this did not come cheap. It was also a risky gift. She was exposing herself to ridicule. She was putting Jesus in an awkward position. Everything about her actions were inappropriate. She took her hair down. This to us is just like, that's weird. She's using her hair as a towel. But in this day and age, to take your hair down in front of a man, that was something you only did with your husband. It was an intimate act. In fact, um, at the time there were allowances, there's rabbinical writings about allowances for divorce, that a man could divorce his wife and not give her any support at all if she took her hair down in public. It was that scandalous what she did. And she had this display of emotion. She was touching Jesus. Rabbis never even spoke to women in public, not even their wives, let alone let a woman touch them. And she may have been an unwelcomed guest at Simon's, but she was the one who welcomed Jesus appropriately. Everything seemed inappropriate that she did, but it was actually absolutely appropriate because it signaled that she knew exactly who Jesus was. And it's worth noting, and I say this as a woman who cries, hear the tears. I say this as a woman who cries, that it is worth noting that Jesus did not shush her. He did not shame her. He did not tell her to stop crying. He did not say, are you okay? She was not okay. She was crying. Let her not be okay. Jesus, this isn't even the only time Jesus interacts with a crying woman. It happens a lot in scripture. You notice when you are one. It happens. Just earlier in Luke 7, in fact, Jesus encounters a crying woman at her own son's funeral. Her son has died. She has no husband. Now she has no son. She has no hope. And Jesus does say, don't weep. But that's because he was about to raise her son from the dead and her tears were no longer appropriate. But in this moment, this woman's tears were entirely appropriate. He seems to think they're exactly the right response. Tears of gratitude, tears of grief over her sin, possibly even tears of the shared suffering at the indignity that her savior has just been put through by this Pharisee. He commends her faith, her offering, and even her display of affection as genuine and right she was not manipulating him, she was already forgiven. Another observation about this woman is that she put her faith in Jesus, she believed what he said. The story tells us of her reputation that, it was, that she was a sinful woman, that she was a sinner. And the historical sort of assumption within the church has always been that she was promiscuous, maybe even a sex worker. We don't know that for certain. Luke knew the word for prostitute. He uses it in Luke 15. He didn't use it here. So we don't know. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. 
The Greek word for sinner just means someone who is devoted to sin. In his letters, the Apostle Paul's lists, he has all kinds of lists of sins. And, and, and in Galatians chapter five, that he has one that he says that these acts of the flesh are obvious to all. And he has this long list, sexual impurity, immorality, promiscuity, check, 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 right? Drunkenness and carousing, check, check. Greed, which is idolatry, tax collector, check, right? But also things like hatred, strife, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, ouch. Whatever kind of sinner she was, whatever her list was, it was the kind of sin that everybody knew about. She could not hide it. But she knew that she needed forgiveness and she trusted that Jesus could, in fact, and would, in fact, forgive her for all of it. She was desperate for mercy because it was her only hope. She could not make amends for her sin. She could not. So she knew all she could do was throw herself upon the mercy of God. So when she heard it was available to her, she jumped on it. And she rightly understood that Jesus was the one to make her offering to, that he, not a priest at the temple, was the true mediator between God and man. And so when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, he means it. Faith in the mercy and grace of Jesus is the basis of our justification, which means how we are made right with God on the basis of what he's done and us believing it. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we've been made right by trusting that he is who he says he is. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. So when he says, go in peace, he means it. Go in peace with God. You have been made right. So although Simon saw a sinful woman, Jesus saw a forgiven one. And so finally, let's look at Jesus. Oh, no better place to look, right? Let's look at Jesus. Now, number one, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. In fact, that was his response when, when he was, uh, the, the, the Pharisees called him a friend of sinners, right? He was like, well, of course I'm hanging out with the sinners. I've come to call sinners to repentance. So there's multiple kinds of sinners, right? There are lawbreakers like this woman that we've looked at doing things that are outside of God's boundaries, that which is obvious. But it's not just lawbreakers who are sinners, it's also law keepers. Some of us are pr prone to ignore the things we know we should do and just look like we have it all together on the outside, right? There are sins, that things that we do we know are wrong, and then there are sins of things that we ought to do that we do not. Obedience that we owe to God that we do not do. All of us are sinners. All of us are devoted to something other than God. And so I just wanna encourage you tonight, don't be afraid to look deeply and intently at the depth of your sin. Because as Corey Ten Boom wrote, there is no pit that his love is not deeper still. Mercy triumphs. His love is bigger. Jesus wants to set us free, but we have to face the uncomfortable truth about our position with God, that we are separated from him. In fact, it's good to kind of reframe this idea of sinners because to be a sinner is less about whether we are perceived to be a good or bad person by others. It's not about our place on a sliding scale, right? To like 
perfect angel, practically an animal, right? It's not about that. Eugene Peterson, in fact, writes that sinner means something, it just means something is awry between humans and God. It designates humans in relation not to one another, not comparing one to the other, but to God and sees them as separated from God, not at peace with God. And all people owe God their allegiance if he is truly God, their devotion. They owe him their obedience, their allegiance, their devotion, and all people fall short of that goal. All people have a debt they cannot pay. Like in the story Jesus tells, all of us are in the hole. It doesn't matter how much money you owe if you can't pay it, right? There's a kind of hole you can't dig yourself out of. In fact, speaking of holes, hole in the ground, when I was in high school, I went to a summer camp and we would do all kinds of adventures. So we might go rappelling, we might go canoeing, we might go caving. And so when I was a, a teenager, I went in a cave and I, I distinctly remember because I am a little more on the Simon the Pharisee side of things where I like to know the rules and follow the rules, understand the rules. And so when our leader began to tell us about the dangers of the cave and that we should stay in groups and we should always have our flashlight and that we should um, never go beyond the parameters he gave us and that when we were going from one area of the cave to the other, we needed to stay right behind the person in front of us and that we should not deviate to the right or to the left because there would be steep drop-offs and that some of the areas of the cave were unexplored and that if we fell in them, they might not be able to find us. Now, as an adult, looking back, he might have been, but you know, maybe fudging that last little part a little bit. I doubt they took us into super duper dangerous areas of the cave, but I did not know that at the time. And so when I was in the cave, we were moving from one large area, we were going to another area where we were gonna do sort of a, a walkthrough of a different part of the cave. and so. We were sort of, we would sometimes we would get down and we'd be in the water and we'd have to sort of scramble around rocks. And at this point, we were going up an incline uh, and it was a rocky area, but the rocks were covered in this slick, uh, slick, slimy mud. Okay, and I'm trying to scramble up, up it and my foot slips and I drop my flashlight and I start to fall. I start to slide and I slide past the person behind me and I slide by and past the person behind them and the person behind them and past the entire group and I keep sliding and I keep sliding and I'm going down and down and down until finally I stop. And to me, I felt like I'd slid so long that I was like down with Gollum, you know, like in the depths of the earth. I was about to see Gandalf come and fight some big monster like in the Lord of the Rings. I thought I was done. I was without hope. There was no way. And of course I was panicked. I was shaking. I had no idea, and, and as I, in my panic, tried to crawl back up the incline, I couldn't, I kept sliding back and sliding back. I didn't even notice when the rope dropped. <laughs> because of course everyone knew what had happened because I was screaming my head off, right? <laughs> and I looked up and I saw, you know, the light of, of all those flashlights and headlamps, you know, just like looking down at me, and I grabbed the rope and they had to haul me up out of there because there was no way and I was only about 15, 20 feet beyond the end of the group. It was not, I was not in a deep hole, but it sure felt like that. And the truth of the matter is, is that any hole that you can't get yourself out of 
eventually becomes a grave. It can be a few feet deep, it can be the Grand Canyon. But if you can't get yourself out of that hole, you're gonna die there. And that's what sin is like. It doesn't matter, there are degrees, but if you can't get yourself out, what does it matter? What does it matter if you're, if you're 20 feet down or all the way down there with Gollum? And the next thing we notice about Jesus is that he forgives fully and freely. Fully and freely. In our text, in verse 42, it says, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. None of us are able to pay back the debt of obedience that we owe to God. That's why it's a gift. The grace and mercy of God are a gift. Earning isn't even on the table. The right response to a gift is just to receive it, to take possession of it. Not to say, oh, no, 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 I could never. I can't pay you for that. I, I don't deserve that. It's, it's a gift. You don't deserve a gift. I'm a mom of five kids, and Christmas time is my Super Bowl, okay? Getting everybody's gift together, it is, it is a huge ordeal. I do spreadsheets. I am not an organized person except at Christmas. I need to know, where did I order from? You know, is it Amazon, is it Target, is it Walmart? Where's it coming from, when's it coming? What can I expect, how much money have I spent? There's all that side of things, but most of it is I wanna ask myself, what do I want to give my children? I think about them and I, I look forward to that moment when they open it. I, I think about how will they enjoy this? I have big kids now, so I think what would they like to wear? <laughs> And I can't imagine my grief if on Christmas morning they didn't want to open their gifts. Or maybe they opened it and said, I can't take this from you, Mom. Grace is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. We can't earn it. We're not supposed to. Because Jesus' merit alone makes us right with God. That's our last point about Jesus. It's his merit alone that makes us right with God, that justifies us. And I wanna say something to you that may rankle. It may not seem true when I first say it, okay? So bear with me, because I'll explain. This story shows us that it is not our sin that ultimately separates us from God. It is not our sin that ultimately separates us from God. It is self-righteousness. Because at the end of this story, Jesus affirms the right standing of the sinful woman at his feet. She is the one who walks out of the party justified. And our sin can lead us to the feet of Jesus, desperate for his mercy. He dealt with sin on the cross, he forgives it freely. But our self-righteousness will leave us alienated from him. Think about the story of the prodigal son, which is just a few chapters over in Luke. Who was left out of the party at the end? It was the good son. The prodigal was in with the father, even though he'd run away, he returned and he was forgiven. Ultimately, at the end, it is self-righteousness that keeps us away from God. The only, only, only thing that precludes us from being justified before God is trying to be justified on our own. 
Whether we come from a place of pride, of I'm doing pretty good, I can handle it, I'm, I'm doing fine, or from a place of shame, berating ourselves for not trying harder or doing better or, or, or being enough. Pride and shame can both keep us from accepting that gift. Galatians 2.16 says, a person is not justified or made right by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so the plot twist of this dinner party is that the one who was thought to be a sinner is revealed as the righteous one on the basis of faith. And the one who is thought to be righteous is revealed to be the sinner, the one who is separated from God. You know, Luke 7 doesn't record the only dinner party in scripture, far from it. Jesus had dinner with a lot of people, <laughs> probably the most famous of which was the Last Supper, right? When he washed the disciples' feet in a gesture of love and hospitality. But it was then, it was there, it was at that supper that Jesus said to his disciples, make your home in my love. My joy will be in you. I'll send you my spirit. I'll give you my peace. Gift, gift, gift. Free, unearned gifts. And then he says this. You are my friends. I don't call you servants anymore. I call you my friends. You see, the Pharisees may have called Jesus the friend of sinners as an insult, but they got it right. It's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is one who chooses sinners like you and me, lawbreakers, law keepers. He gives his life for us. He makes us his friends. The friend of sinners has come to take people like you and me, sinners separated from God without peace, and he makes us his friends. He doesn't become like us. He became like us in becoming a human, but he doesn't become like us in sin but the nearness of Jesus makes sinners like Jesus. And then at the end of our scriptures in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3.20 records the words of Jesus to a first century church, but I think they echo through the years to us, to this church, to us today. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He's still knocking, guys. He wants to have a dinner party with us. <laughs> Remember what that means. That hospitality, that welcoming. He wants to be in relationship with you and with me. He still longs to come and eat with sinners, but he goes, he'll go to the Pharisee's house too. He wants to come in, but he needs to be invited. And I wonder what kind of welcome will we give him? So as we close, I've gotta ask, so what? That's what we do here at the gathering, right? We ask, so what? So here are the things I have for you. The first one, the first so what is, I just ask you, open your ears. Would you open your ears? Hear him knocking. Jesus is seeking a hospitable welcome in you. You know, the very end of our story tonight, the scriptures, the people there, they, they reacted, right? They said, who is this who even forgives sins? That is a great question. If you've never encountered Jesus to begin with, who 
is he anyway? Get curious. Let the scriptures tell you. Let the spirit show you. Just ask. Open your ears. Then open your eyes is our second one. First John uh, 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're really good at that, aren't we? <laughs> Self-deception. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we see them, if we recognize them, if we get brave enough to say them out loud, God, who is faithful and just, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Put us in right standing, open your eyes, not only to Jesus, but to yourself. All of us have been at times blind, standing in our own graves. Ask God to help you see, to see the whole truth. Whether your sin is obvious or hidden, you are wholly unable to wipe out the debt that you owe. But forgiveness is free. He is faithful. He is just. Forgive us. Don't let pride keep you back. Don't let shame blind you. And then finally, open your ears, open your eyes, and open your, the door of your life to Jesus. Don't stand back. Don't stand apart. Offer him everything. It's so worth it. You won't regret it. Worship him rightly. Be bold. Be awkward. Weep and worship and love him deeply. He deserves it all. He deserves it all. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna take 120 seconds to sit with that, so what? Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. You are merciful and we confess we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have sinned against you in thought, word, deed, by what we've done, by what we've left undone. Forgive us, we pray. We throw ourselves on your mercy. And we thank you, Jesus, for your free gift of grace. In Jesus' name.